Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Door, a weekly broadcast that examines what Lutheran Christians believe about God, the world, and us. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and I invite you to join us for the next hour. And later, we will take questions at 740-383-9944, that's 740-383-WWGH, or on Facebook at the Wittenberg Door, where you can submit your questions live. Please join us now on the Wittenberg Door. Okay, here we go, boldly going where we've never been before. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius from Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and you're listening to the Wittenberg Door. Actually, the inaugural edition, the first edition of the Wittenberg Door. We welcome you all. Thank you for joining us. And uh, today we're going to talk about the news a little bit, what, how it pertains to uh, who we are as Christians and uh, how it affects the church. Uh, can we turn that down out there? Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> got a little background noise there. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, look forward to uh, our services coming up on Sunday where we'll be uh, we're going to be reading the lessons for the upcoming Sunday. And so we hope you'll join us for that. We're also going to uh, give you an opportunity to submit questions. If you want to call us at uh, 387-740-383-9944. Let me write this down. 740-383-9944. That's WWGH, 383-WWGH. Okay, <laughs> that's that's that. And uh, with me today, I have uh, my uh, <coughs> the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, the Tonto to my Lone Ranger, uh-huh. a man skilled in the tactics of the IDF and uh, Taekwondo. Is it? My say. my bodyguard, Alan Dean. Thanks <laughs> for joining us, Hello. Alan. I'm proud to be here. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, uh, now, we also want to make you aware that we do have a Facebook group, and this is, way, this is one of the ways we'll take questions. If you don't want to call, you can just uh, go to Facebook, look for us on uh, the group section of Facebook. It's the Wittenberg Door, and you could uh, write a question. We have it live here with us, and, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to get your question and see what we can do to give you an answer. Mm-hmm. How's that? All right. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do first is we're going to take a look at stories in the news mm-hmm. that affect uh, the uh, positions of the church, maybe the life or the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Alan, what's our first story? Well, let's start at the beginning. We have from sciencemag.org, uh, the 16th of March, uh, the writer Robert F. Service and... We'll start from the beginning. Researchers have solved, may have solved, origin of life conundrum. Okay. <laughs> uh, we begin. The origin of life on Earth is a set of paradoxes. In order for life to have gotten started, there must have been a genetic molecule, something like DNA or RNA, capable of passing along blueprints for making proteins, the workhorse molecules of life. But modern cells can't copy DNA and RNA without the help of proteins themselves. To make matters more vexing, none of these molecules can, have, can do their jobs without fatty lipids, 
which provide the membranes that cells need to hold their content inside. And yet another chicken and egg complication, protein-based enzymes encoded by genetic molecules are needed to synthesize lipids. <clears throat> now researchers say they may have solved these paradoxes, of course. Chemists report today that a simple pair of compounds which have would have been abundant on early Earth can give rise to a network of simple reactions that produce three major classes of biomolecules, nucleic acids, amino acids, and lipids, needed for the earliest form of life to get its start. Although the new work does not prove that this is how life started, it may eventually help explain one of the deepest mysteries of modern science. Thank you. All right. <laughs> not only one of the deepest mysteries of modern science, but I think a question that every human being has to ask themselves. Correct. Where did this all come from? Where, you know, where... Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, this interesting story. Now, of course, science always uh, is looking for natural explanations Right to the, the mystery of life. And um, uh, one of the things you notice about that story is how many times it says could have or would have. You know, if this had happened, then this would have happened or this could have happened. Uh, they, of course, they qualify the, the entire story by saying what? Scientists may have solved. May. May have solved. Now, uh, a lot of times people read these things and uh, what gets dropped off, they get the may have gets mm -hmm. dropped off. The could have gets dropped off. Or if this, then this. And those kind of things all get eliminated. And, and somebody makes the announcement, well, they've, they've discovered the, the secret to life. As a fact. But, you know, one of the things, as, as you're reading that story, and one of the things that, that struck me was how complicated life really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin, 150 years ago, uh, wrote The Origin of Species. And uh, Charles Darwin believed that life on Earth was simple. He, he believed the cell, the, uh, life at the cellular level right. was simple. And, uh, you know, of course, this was long before uh, DNA. Uh, 1953, I think it was, when Watson, Crick, and Wilson, three scientists, discovered DNA, won the Nobel Prize, actually, for the discovery of DNA. And what they found was that life at the cellular level isn't simple. Now, something now that we all take for granted. All right. Uh, we live in the age of, you know, long ago when I was in high school, test tube babies and, uh, uh, you know, these kind of these modern miracles of science that happen because we've now discovered uh, that as a, a, a researcher at uh, Behe University, uh, not Behe, you know, Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, a guy named Michael Behe wrote a book called The Black Box. And, uh, and what he said, this, he's a microbiologist at this university, he said that life is uh, irreducibly complex. Right. So uh, all this uh, DNA and RNA, that which, uh, you know, transmits, and what they're talking about, the transmission of uh, information from one cell to the next. What this DNA does is it gives the information necessary uh, for life to form in a, in a certain kind of way. Uh, I always like to use the analogy of uh, the kid, the, the, the toddler that sits down at their parents' computer 
and they start tapping on the keys oh, of the computer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the parents uh, are indulgent. They let the kid sit at the sit at the computer and tap the computer to their heart's content. And then one day the parent walks up and they find that the uh, the child has typed, the two-year-old has typed the sentence, uh, uh, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, uh-huh. right? <laughs> Uh, these this ran, these random tappings have suddenly come together uh, to form a coherent sentence, right? Right. And when we talk about life coming together and and this DNA, uh, which forms the basis of life and and actually structures life as it is, this DNA that tells uh, uh, cells how to operate, for instance, what to do in, in, in certain circumstances. All that stuff is very complex. We find out there are, we have found out, look how long it took to crack the genetic code mm-hmm. from 50, 1953 into the late 90s. So over 40 years that it took to, to crack the human genome, to crack that to, uh, genetic code uh, so that we can kind of get a glimpse in and look in at all this information. And what they found was there are libraries of information. Right. And so the question you have to ask yourself when you read stories like this is how did all these libraries of information come together simply by random chance? Uh, You know, even less than a child tapping, a toddler tapping at the keys on a computer, and it somehow this all came together, and it formed a a coherent uh, uh, literature, genetic literature, libraries of information, and all of it came together, and and it makes sense. It's readable. We know what we know. Uh, you know what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the chances? Do you think? That all that happened by accident. <laughs> it's uh, it's it boggles the mind, and so yes, this story of uh, DNA and RNA coming together, and it, this is how it could have happened. This is how it may have happened. This is uh, this is what could have been. We have to remember that life at the cellular level is irreducibly complex, and and. And really what this DNA does is it forms machines. Your cell is actually a machine with a set of instructions, a computer program. Alan, you know about computer programs. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have a caller. Very good. Well, let's uh, – I didn't expect it that early, but let's see what we, who we have okay. here. Hello? Hello. You're on the air. Okay, thank you. Is this Brett Cornelius? Yes, this is Brett Cornelius. Guess who this is? I, uh, I'm... I'm I remember somebody named Kathy. Kathy. I know a lot of Kathys. She has a well, bad memory. <laughs> Don't get offended, uh, Kathy. I, I know I'm not supposed to use the last name. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm well. not supposed to do that part. All right. Well, this is the Kathy. I have a okay. question. Okay, very good. Okay. What's your question? In the Bible, since yeah. I know you're a good preacher. Okay, thank you. You've asked a lot of questions for me in the past. Oh, good. And uh, I've had a life and death experience since I've talked to you last. Oh, my goodness. I've got a pacemaker now. My heart failed. Oh. And I know God saved my life. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, he did. But Jesus said something in the Bible. Okay. He said, greater things you will do than I have done. Uh-huh. What in the world is he talking about? Oh, well, that's... Uh that's a, actually a great question. When I'd he, like to hear the answer to that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's really the one that fast, That's the one that blows my mind. Oh, okay. Well, that, it, I, like that does that. blow I, my I'll mind, doesn't the answer it? answer off the air. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, thank you for calling, Kathy. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Have a good day. God bless. Thank you. All right. That's a, that's a great question, yeah, isn't it? I and like I think that. as uh, as Christians have... Uh, read read that verse in the Bible and and wondered about it. What what does that mean? Greater things. Uh, now, remember that when you're reading scripture, context is so very important. Right. Um, you know, uh, my dad was a real estate broker, and he said, uh, of course, it's a kind of a well known axiom in real estate that uh, the three most important things are what location, location, location. Right. Mm-hmm. So I've borrowed that now as I uh, preach and teach from the scriptures. And I always like to say that the three most important things when you're reading the scripture is context, context, context. And so you have to ask yourself questions when you, when you read the scriptures. And, of course, she's asking this question. Yeah. Uh, now, I would say that when Jesus uh, – my, my, my first kind of preliminary answer is – when Jesus makes that statement, who is he making it making it to? Mm-hmm. And I don't. I'm sorry to say that I don't have my my Bible in front of me. I'm going to do that next time, Kathy. Sorry about that. Bring my Bible with me. Uh, but I, I believe this is from the Book of John, where Jesus says, says to the disciples, mm-hmm. his apostles, uh, the things that I do, greater things uh, shall you do, because you believe in me. Now uh, that's a. Uh, uh, a wonderful statement, uh, because Jesus did some pretty wonderful things. He uh, cleansed the lepers. All right. He freed people from the power of the devil, the demoniacs from the power of the devil. He uh, cured the sick. He gave the uh, sight to the blind. He raised the dead in a number of cases. And those are all great works. And he himself rose from the dead. And those are those are great works, and you think to yourself, well, how could anything be greater than that? And that's our first question. How could anything be greater than that? And I would say that I think what Jesus was saying to his disciples was that the work that he was giving them to do in its scale would be greater than what he did. When Jesus um, taught and when Jesus preached, um, of course, Jesus talked about the, the coming kingdom of God uh, and, and, and on occasion presented himself as the, as the king. Uh, he didn't always disclose that to everyone, but uh, we know that on a number of occasions he did. But there were things about the gospel, things about what Jesus did that weren't yet revealed because they hadn't happened yet. And most importantly, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. And when that happened, he ascended into heaven. He, as, as we confess in the creed, he sits at the right hand of God. And he sent the church, he sent his disciples, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
his parting words to the disciples were, go therefore into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so that greater work that these disciples were going to do was they were going to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ you know, on, a ma- on a massive scale. And we know that Christianity went from those 12 disciples, and it's the, it's the biggest religion in the world now. And that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. And it, it continues to go on. And by the way, uh, we often um, confuse in our theological thinking, we all, uh, scriptural thinking, we often confuse the, uh, the miraculous with the mundane, right? For instance, I take a child, I bring it to the baptismal font, I pour water on its head, I say some words in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe not a child, maybe an adult. Bring them to the font, wherever the baptism happens. And what people see is the mundane. They see water being poured over the head. They see words being spoken. But underneath that mundane uh, action is a miraculous event. Because somebody... In that baptism, somebody is being raised from the dead. Somebody is being given new life. Uh, uh, scripture teaches that that baptism is is uh, uh, the means of regeneration. Uh, Paul calls it uh, a washing of regeneration. So that means when when someone is Jesus Himself says in John, in John chapter three, uh, unless a man is born of Water, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, water in the spirit. And that's exactly what's happening in, in baptism. So, Kathy, in answer to your question, I, 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 I'm the, the heavyweight champion of long answers, right? Yes. Sorry, Kathy, that was my long answer. What does it mean that, that the, the disciples did greater works than Jesus? Uh, well, the disciples went out and made disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Kathy, if you have Facebook, uh, post your response to that answer. If uh, if it, it's not quite satisfactory, let me know, and and uh, I'll see what what I can do to maybe probe a little deeper. Okay, good. And uh, as mentioning Facebook, we'd like to thank Josh for uh, posting uh, www.esvbible.org. Oh, good. For an online resource. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you Josh. for that. All right, somebody's on the ball here. Somebody okay. knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's not, unfortunately, the host. Okay, very good. Well, let's uh, go with our next story. What's our, what's our next story, Alan? Okay, so in the news, we know Ted Cruz was our... Uh, Yes, candidate to go for president. Right, right. Announced this week at we're at Liberty, Liberty University. University. Yeah. Um, so from Pathos.com, mm-hmm. the title: If Jesus gave a speech at Liberty University, here's <laughs> some things I think he'd say. <laughs> now, by the way, Liberty University is a is a Christian university. Mm-hmm. It was founded by Jerry Falwell. It's in uh, somewhere in Virginia. Do you know where in Virginia? Hi. Somewhere in Virginia. And so um, uh, Jerry Falwell, of course, the founder of the Moral Majority, mm-hmm. and and very politically 
Tide. Jerry Falwell is is probably better known for his political right. work than he is for his uh, religious work. Although I'm not trying to discount it, what he's done in in his church or in establishing the university. Very good thing. Uh, but okay, so. This is where Ted Cruz makes the announcement because this is a very politically active well, university. Yes, correct. Yeah, especially for right-wing politicians. Right. Right. Yeah, so. Okay. Yesterday, Senator Ted Cruz became the first candidate to announce they're running for president in the 2016 election cycle during a speech he gave at Liberty University. Liberty students were required to attend or face a fine, so Cruz had a pretty decent crowd to help try to insert some perceived energy into his political campaign. As I sat last night and listened to the speech and thought about the ways in which secular political loyalty has bled into the kingdom of God, it made me wonder if Jesus himself would be invited to give a speech at a Christian university in America. This is, this is the writer saying this. This is the writer, yeah. I'm sorry, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. And if he did get invited... Would he get thrown out mid-speech for sounding liberal or un-American? Personally, I'd be shocked if he were invited and even more surprised if they didn't cut his mic because here are some things I think Jesus would say about our current culture that would rub people the wrong way. Okay. Jesus quoting. By the way, let me, let me pause you there sure. for a second because don't you just love it? When anybody, right or left, put puts words into the mouth of Jesus, right. I mean, it's always kind of a dangerous proposition. You're kind of treading on on dangerous ground when you speak for anybody, uh, especially if you haven't been authorized to speak for somebody. You know, and, and to say, well, you know, to say one thing that I believe Jesus would have said this. I guess that's you know it's okay, but to but to put the actual words in the mouth of Jesus that's a, that's a little at Liberty University, <laughs> yeah. So the writer's taking some liberties as well. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. All right, number one. All right, Jesus quoting: "You have heard some of my opponents say that we must kill and destroy every last member of ISIS, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you, so that you can become God's children." Right, right. Well, let me say that uh, that statement alone, there are some theological problems with it, okay, to, to say the least. Um, now, it's true that Jesus tells Christians to do what? We are to love our enemies. Mm-hmm. We're to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, that, that's found in the Gospel of Matthew in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And Christians should uh, by the way, it's not a bad idea to find out who these leaders of ISIS are so that we can mention them by name in our prayers. Right. Uh, we should be praying for our enemies, and especially we should be praying for those who persecute us. And, uh, and uh, you know, kind of American Christians have been spared from the ISIS persecution. But boy, if you're in Syria and Iraq right now, and oh. you're a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the church is being devastated in those places uh, by by what the, these hateful people are doing. Um, there was a story a couple weeks ago of the Egyptian Christians in in Libya, who uh, twenty one of whom oh, yeah. twenty one of whom were beheaded by these. Uh, 
members of ISIS, these zealots of, of Islam. So what do we say about that? We say, of course we pray for them. Christians pray for our enemies. And and every and you know, Alan, you you mm-hmm. belong to our church. We know we know that every week we include prayers for those who are who uh who uh persecute us and and uh, come against the church. Uh but I think what this writer does, the first thing this writer does is he makes a mistake by blending politics with religion. Yeah. Right? Um we Americans tend to think that separation of church and state began in the 1700s with the Bill of Rights, maybe, or with Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danville Baptist, in which he actually uses the phrase separation of church and state. Do you know where the actual separation of church and state begins? Where? It begins in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, and of course, one question that Pilate is very interested in is, is this guy someone who's posing as a king? Right. And so Pilate asks him, uh, explicitly asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Correct. And that's something that I think Christians, both right and left, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, Christians, both right and left, have to remember that we cannot identify our politics with Christ himself. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And um, I think another relevant thing that we have to remember here is in Romans chapter 12, where Paul is instructing Christians how to live in the world and, and how we as those who have been redeemed by Christ should live. He says, uh, love your enemies, mm-hmm. just as Christ says. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink of water, right? Uh, uh, don't ever take your own vengeance, Paul says. Mm-hmm. But in the very next chapter, he talks about human government that God himself has established for the purpose of judgment, now, this is, this is, this is very, I think a lot of Christians forget this, that the church exists in society to um, deliver the mercy of Christ to a lost and dying world. That's why we're here. We're here to forgive people. We're here to, to uh, uh, restore people, Right? But if we ask ourselves, what is the, uh, now what do Christians believe about what is the purpose of human government? And Paul's very clear in Romans chapter 13 that God has put a, a sword into the hand of human government. Mm-hmm. It, uh, their, their purpose isn't forgiveness and mercy. The purpose of human government is justice. It's to keep you from stealing my stuff and vice versa. Right, and um, there are not only uh, 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 issues of justice between individuals in society, but you have in uh, issues of justice between nations. Uh, so, for instance, many Christians don't believe that war is ever is ever right. They're pacifists. They don't believe, but because because Jesus has turned the other cheek that uh, human governments should turn the other cheek. But Christ isn't telling human governments to turn the other cheek. He's telling Christians 
to turn the other cheek. And here, now read that statement again that he makes, uh, Jesus would have said. Mm-hmm. You have heard some of my opponents say that we must kill and destroy every, every last member of ISIS. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you so that you can become God's children. Okay. All right. And, yeah. and that last piece, we need, we need to address that one yeah. too. But, but uh, so what he's doing essentially, and, and it happens on the right too, but what this guy is doing is he's confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. Uh, uh, he's confusing spiritual power uh, with human power. Now, uh, by the way, uh, we as Christians believe that Christ is, uh, rules over all. But he rules over all in a different way. He rules through the Christ, through the church in one way, transmitting mercy. He rules through the, through the kingdoms of the world in another way, uh, delivering justice, okay? Mm-hmm. And Christians have always believed, and especially since the time of uh, St. Augustine, who, who really wrote about the, the, uh, uh, what is called a just war, right? That there are times when the prince, he puts, as he puts it, when the human authority uh, uh, has both the responsibility and the duty uh, to ensure justice by going to war. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so the theory of a just war is rich in the Christian tradition. But it's not because the church goes to war. The church never goes to war except against the devil, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the uh, elements of deception and our own sinful natures, because we're always battling with that. But, but we don't battle in, in human kingdoms. Does this make sense? Oh, Am yeah. I making sense? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. So he's confusing the kingdoms, but he's confused between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Now, that's bad enough. But the, la- the last of that statement, when he says, so that, what is it? So that you can become God's children. So that you can be, in other words, do this so that you will be God's, God's children. Can become. God's, so that you can become so you, God's children. So you're not right, children. right. So in other words, if you're not God's child and you do this, you'll become God's child. And Christ never says that. Mm-mm. Uh, uh, that's a kind of a paraphrase of the words of Christ. Jesus isn't saying, uh, do these things to become God's children. Jesus will sometimes say, do this because you are God's children, right? So that you may be shown to be God's children. Because uh, Christians uh, bear the fruit of, of Christian. We bear the fruit of our faith in, in the works that... Uh, that Christ did mm-hmm. in, the, in living the life that, uh, that God wants us to live. But we don't become God's children that way. How do we become God's children? This is such an important question. How do we become God's children? And how do we become God's children when we're lost and sinful, when we're alienated from God, when, when because uh, of our sins uh, there has been a separation between man and God? How do we become God's children? Well, first of all, we become God's children because Christ himself, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that second person of the Trinity came down and became one of us. He became a child of Mary. 
He became a child of man. Uh, He was like us in every way except for sin. And this uh, sinless Son of God, uh, uh, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and uh, 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 and begotten of the, uh, the, uh, and born of the Virgin Mary, in time, he lived the perfect life, mm-hmm. the life that you and I should have lived and haven't. And then he did something uh, that really rescued us. He took our sins on himself. Isaiah says. Uh, he took our sins and he carried them to the cross and he carried them on the cross and he suffered and died the just penalty that each of us deserves because of sin and 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 paid the price you know uh, Paul says in Romans the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord mm-hmm. and that and that's what he was you know uh, by the way we're coming up on that season aren't we yes we are coming up on the season of uh, Good Friday and Easter and uh, what are those events about it's about God's saving of humanity and so he died on the cross he rose from the dead he defeated death for us he died for us, died in our place, took our sins, suffered for our sins, rose again from the dead for us, and he sends out this gospel through the church, announcing that, that all sin is forgiven for the sake of Christ, and inviting people to come and find their rest and find their peace with God in this person of Christ, the, the crucified and risen one who now sits at the right hand of God and is coming again to judge the living and dead. Right. Find your peace in him. Mm-hmm. He brings us to the waters of baptism where he washes us, and there God makes us his children. And anything that we do in the world, any Christ-like uh, action that we take is all a result of what God has did has done for us, and what God has done to us. Um, uh, and so uh, we don't become children of God by the things that we do. Uh, we that the things that we do may show that we're lights in the world and that we're children of the kingdom of God, but that's not how we become God's children. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Very good. Okay. All right, so what does he say next? Okay, um, okay. You have heard some of my opponents say that we must find ways around the drug shortage for executions in America. But I tell you that he was without sin administer the first injection. <laughs> By the way, you notice he does a very clever thing when he writes these little propositions out. Mm-hmm. He says, you have heard my opponent say, and then he takes the kind of the right-wing position, and he makes they, they are the opponents of Jesus. So the assumption is the right-wing uh People, political people, or or Christians, they are the opponents of Jesus, and this is what they would say, but now this is what I'm going to say. Now, again, uh, of course, what is he doing? He's he's confusing the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. In Mm -hmm. the kingdom of God... We don't throw the first stone. Now, uh, he says, uh, administer the first injection, right? Uh, Now, where does he get this idea? Well, he gets it from John chapter 8. And John chapter 8 tells the story of the woman caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus in the temple. 
And uh, the Pharisees say to Jesus, uh, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Moses said we should stone her. What do you say? And uh, and uh, it's interesting. And of course, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have my Bible with me. But Jesus stoops to the ground and he writes on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. It's very interesting mm-hmm. that John records that he wrote something. I think, I think, this is my own theory, I think he may have been writing the Ten Commandments. And they may have been seeing in those commandments their own sin. Well, then, at, at any rate, he raises up and he says, I say to you, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. Right? And then, of course, they all walk away, beginning with the oldest, beginning with the wisest, presumably. They all begin to walk away. And uh, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, uh, did no one condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn. That's wonderful. Yeah. And this is the really the function of the church. Uh, you know, Kathy... By the way, Kathy, thank you for calling and asking that question. Kathy asked the question, uh, we will do greater, uh, uh, Jesus promised to the disciples, what, the things that I do, that, the greater things shall you do. The church does this. Neither do I condemn you. When the church offers the gift of absolution, what are we saying? We're saying God does not condemn you. And with the authority of Christ that he's given to the church, we are releasing you from your sins. Right, and so uh, by that, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's what we should do. It's by the way, it's telling that this event happens in the temple, right? Yeah. Now, a couple things that people need to know when they read this lesson, especially when they tr- try to apply it to uh, uh, our modern um, justice system, American justice system, uh, that the Jews did not have the power. Uh, the Roman authorities did not permit the Jews to carry out the death penalty. That's why when Jesus is crucified, they bring Jesus to Pilate because Pilate is the only one there that has the authority right. to, to put to death. And uh, so they don't have the authority to do this. And now going back to Romans chapters 12 and 13, and we think about this separation of of church and state, maybe not be the best language we should use, separation of church and state, but a, a distinction between the church and state. Individuals, you and me, Alan, mm-hmm. if somebody throws a rock through our window, we don't have the authority to pick up that rock and go throw it through their window. And Christ tells us not to, right? right. Uh, but if a cruiser's pulling down the street as our neighbor picks up a stone and throws it through the window, uh, it is given to that officer of the law to put the man in handcuffs and to arrest him. Right. Right? That's his function in society. And it's a good thing that we have human government in society. Otherwise, we'd have chaos. We'd have anarchy. Uh, uh, the world would literally be unlivable. Right? Yeah. So, um, so what we see is, in the case of this woman caught in adultery, Christ does not condemn her. No one else condemns her. They don't have the authority to condemn. Uh, and of course, the Roman authorities would never have would never have put somebody to death for adultery. That only would have happened in in the Old Testament law of Moses. That would never would have happened in Roman law, or it didn't happen in Roman law. Uh, so uh, here he he's what and, and really what the. The thrust of what he's saying here is that since Christ uh, 
told these these Pharisees, okay, thank you, told these Pharisees uh, not to cast the first stone, Christians should not support the death penalty. I've heard that. Yeah. But in fact, um, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, tells us that, that, uh, that, that God does give the authority to men to carry out the death penalty. Now, it shouldn't happen for adultery. It shouldn't happen for, you know, uh, throwing a rock through a window, by the way, mm-hmm, right. right? But uh, there, are, uh, there are crimes that are so egregious that the only just punishment is the loss of another person's life, right? Mm-hmm. Now, every civil society decides what those crimes are. And so we don't, for instance, uh, here's another thing that Christians don't do. We don't t- pick up the Bible and say, now, uh, listen, Governor Kasich, the Bible says that somebody should be put to death for this. Christians don't do that. We have our own laws in Ohio uh, that, uh, that the citizens of Ohio have uh, voted on through their representatives and have, have come to know through common law. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, so we reserve those cases for capital punishment. Or a, a state can say, a, the state itself can say, we're not going to carry out capital punishment. Uh, that's, that's up to the citizens, wherever they are, whatever locality they are, to decide uh, how are we going to decide c- cases of justice. Right. Right. So, um, so here again is uh, this issue. Uh, are, do Christians support capital punishment? Do Christians uh, not support capital? Do, do Christians oppose capital punishment? Well, uh, that's not a, a kingdom of the church issue. Right. That's a kingdom of the world issue. And so we leave it to the kingdom of the world to decide that. And we don't say in either case, uh, the Bible says you shouldn't have capital punishment or the Bible says you should have capital punishment because that's an issue that the citizens themselves decide on through their representatives Great. and their judges, yeah. right? Okay. Well, boy, oh, boy. We're getting closer and closer. It's almost, it's almost noon. We brought eight articles today to go over, thinking that – and we didn't get through two, did we? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of things that this guy says here. It Absolutely. might be interesting to bring this up at a, at a future broadcast. So it would, yeah. So we may we may come back to this one. This is a, this is a good uh, good discussion point, uh, folks. We, we're glad that you joined us for our uh, mm-hmm. broadcast today, and we especially want to thank Kathy for uh, calling up. It's not a it's not an easy thing to do to to present your voice on air on uh, for the world to hear. Uh, believe me, I've it's been with trepidation. I. I've I've done that uh, today, and Alan, thank you for uh, for helping me out today, Alan. Um, so, uh, Kathy, thanks for calling, and uh, I want to remind people that we do have a Facebook page under Facebook groups called the Wittenberg Door, and if you'd like to submit a question that uh, we can address on air next week, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, now, next week our broadcast won't be live, actually. For the next two weeks, we have a, a number of events at our church. Next Friday, I want to announce this, by the way. Next Friday, uh, uh, let me just kind of go over the events for our church next week. Next Thursday night, we have a Monday Thursday service at 7 p.m. On Friday morning at 10 o'clock, starting at the courthouse, we're going to uh, take a cross, and we're going to walk it from uh, the courthouse pavement 
to uh, Marion Cemetery mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in observance of Good Friday. Uh, so that's going to be at 10 o'clock at the courthouse if you want to join us for that. We also have at uh, Gethsemane Lutheran Church, our address, by the way, is 219 East Church Street. We have uh, a Good Friday at noon service, uh, so noon, 12 o'clock p.m., uh, if you'd like to come to that. And uh, and especially, and I would really like to invite many people to come to this, is a wonderful service on Good Friday evening at 8 o'clock. We have what's called a tenebrae service, a darkening service, where we, again, once again, contemplate this this great mystery of God becoming flesh and then dying on the cross for our sins uh, um, in anticipation of the Easter morning when he is risen from the dead and uh, the good news comes to us. Uh, uh, so that's at 8 o'clock, that Good Friday Tenebrae service. If you can make it to any, any of these services, uh, we have Easter Sunday with Pancake Breakfast at 9 o'clock at 219 East Church Street. We invite you to join us. We invite you to come to any of these events. And we hope that you'll tune in again once more at our next broadcast, 11 a.m. next Friday, of the Wittenberg Door. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>